again, that's where the inner work comes in, where once you start to learn to cultivate compassion for yourself, you'll take that breath of like, oh, right, okay, they're human. Yo, what is up, People First Leaders? This is day two for your week of inspiration to kick off 2021. Again, my name is Chris Lynn, and I am your advocate and host for the Leading People First podcast, where we explore the effect leadership has on the employee experience in order for us to transform the workplace to be a more positive environment for all. And when I say that I want to create a positive employee experience for everyone, I truly mean it. And there's so many different ways to approach it. The thing is, our current quote-unquote old-school way of working just doesn't cut it anymore. It focuses too much on productivity through efficiency rather than productivity through employee growth and workplace happiness. That's why I had to bring in Elizabeth Sue, who is a wellness writer, the founder of Monday Vibes, which is a female-focused newsletter supporting mental well-being and a perfectionism expert on a mission to change the narratives that women have been told about success and happiness. Elizabeth has done it all from graduating summa cum laude from Tufts University and having a six-figure salary at a hot Silicon Valley startup before she realized she was in a game she didn't even want to play. So I don't want to spoil it. Let's get ready to be inspired and dive right on it. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks for coming on the Leading People First podcast. I am so excited to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. I mean, we have known each other for quite some time. I'm so excited that we could reconnect and, you know, again, I'm excited to have you on and talk with you more about you and your work and what you're doing for employees in the workspace. Thank you. I can't wait to dive in. Awesome. So first things first, what does it mean to you to lead people first? Mm, It's such a good question. Um, To me, I really come back to the word heart-centered leadership. And to me, leading people first is, um, is, is a, a type of leadership where you're really um, always coming back to your heart and coming back to the heart of your people and remembering that people are humans and humans have emotions and we cannot separate the two. Yeah, we, <laughs> there's, there's a lot that gets lost and people, I don't know, people just get so wrapped up in their work. And I know we'll, we'll dive into how we can kind of detach from that a little bit, but um, mm. you know, this is something that is not innate for a lot of us. Our society does not promote this heart sh- uh, heart-centered uh, focus, like you say. So, I mean, walk us through how you got to where you are today and how you learned to lead in this manner. It has not been a linear path. <laughs> I'll say that it's been quite a journey. Um, I... I was in corporate America for nearly 10 years um, in Silicon Valley, really like striving for that version of success that I thought I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, And I reached a point where I I struggled with an eating disorder. I had really high anxiety, insomnia, um, physical illness, really my, my mental, physical, and like spiritual health were going down the drain. And 
I had this reckoning moment where I was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? What is this? Is this, (laughs) is this success? Is this happiness? Am I happy? You know, those are like the big questions that, um, that are scary that I began to ask myself because on the outside, it looked really shiny and seductive. And on the inside, I was crumbling. And so I had uh, kind of this reckoning period um, and eventually decided to quit my corporate job and move across the country to study burnout and perfectionism in uh, specifically in corporate women at Columbia getting my master's in clinical psychology with a focus in spiritual and mind body spirituality and mind body practices, as well as an advanced certificate in sexuality, women and gender. And that just really tickled my fancy. And now I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I run a personal growth newsletter and network for women called Monday vibes and I'm a mental health educator trying to, uh, change the rules of the game. Your your journey has been something that has been really inspirational, I think, to a lot of people. Um, and I know you've you've spoken on how individuals really kind of bring forward and move and are adopting the mindsets and the practices of the past, right? You've talked about poverty mindset before and the effects of like intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you just alluded to that a little bit. So especially when it comes to success and our definitions of success, right? So how do you think that plays into how individuals currently lead teams? Wow. What a good question. It is very present. Uh, I will say, I really think the world would be a happier place. I think we'd be, even though I'm like not about being productive all the time. I think we would be more productive. I would think, I think we would have more peace if people, if more people went to therapy and if therapy was more accessible because what you're talking about, intergenerational trauma, um, you know, PTSD, um, you know, other forms of oppression are extremely present in our everyday and we cannot hide those from the workplace or I'll actually back up and say we can but and I tried to and I realized like I had been living a decade dissociated from my body and that at some point the more healing you do and the more you, the further you are on your empowerment journey, that will come at a head uh, often in the workplace if you're not in an environment that leads people first, because we are whole people. So how could you not? How could if you're looking, if your goal is to be a, a, a you know, an integrated whole person, how could how could you go to work? Um, being one person having suffered something else. Now, this is a really important question because I personally have been doing a lot of work um, healing and uncovering my own internalized oppression as a woman, as an Asian American woman, as a biracial woman. Um, 
and uh, it has become apparent to me, and I'm actually a big part of my thesis was how perfectionism really it's internalized oppression. It is, it's, it's people self-policing, controlling themselves because of what they have been taught by society, because of what society has expected of them, because of how society has treated them as less than. So that's what it means to like hustle for your worth. It's not like, because you, um, you know, have some sort of negative mindset or like you're not thinking you you know you're really hard on yourself i got that feedback a lot it's like well yes but i was taught that and then i internalized it Mm -hmm. so you're taught things you have things passed down that are real you know maybe a few generations ago um were survival mechanisms like life or death we're talking about and so yes like my ancestors, I'm half Chinese, um, had to work very hard. They had to assimilate. They had to forget their culture. They had to blend into the background. They had to be um, small and submissive and quiet. But, um, you know, as time goes on and as generations go, go on and as you begin to heal, you realize that that was a survival mechanism. And now you have brought that upon yourself. Um, And so when it comes to managing, um, there's a lot to unpack there and we can go there if if there's time, but um, to do your own healing, to be able to check your own biases and your own triggers is of absolute critical importance because that's where that's how you cultivate compassion for others if you sort of check out and you dissociate and you pretend everything's like happy and fine and like you're not being oppressed every day uh then that because that (laughs) creates a barrier between you and other people well we all have like you said, like we have these carried forward, um, you know, tr- this trauma and and this these mindsets. And like just for myself, also being Chinese, there's a lot of um, things I've realized in my adult life that I was taught as a child, right? Like um, I actually just wrote about this of constantly comparing myself to others because, you know, uh, growing up, I was constantly anytime I received praise, especially specifically in front of my parents my parents were always dismissive and that was like a saving face value, right? It was like, oh no, like he was, he was okay. Like trying not to be like trying to be humble. Right. But what that ingrained in me was like, I wasn't good enough. Right. And so that I had a, I then had a habit of constantly comparing myself to others. Um, And so that, you know, not only do we have to recognize what we were taught in our own lives, but what has carried on through generations. And when you look at things like, you know, oppression and systemic racist issues. Um, I mean, we could go into DEI as a whole too, that that's a whole nother rabbit hole, but (laughs) there's so much that we need to recognize in ourselves. And so it's even more important for leaders to recognize that, you know, your employees, the people that you work with, they have their own, uh, 
their own experiences and mindsets that were created for them, not just within their own lifetimes, but the lifetimes before them and the generations before them. And so it's so important to come to the table as a leader with empathy and compassion. So let's dive into that a little bit, right? Like, let's talk about the role compassion has in leadership and the employee experience. Something you've said before is that boundaries are the most compassionate thing you can do in a relationship. So how does that apply to the relationships that we have at work? Yeah, I think, and this kind of goes back to what is, you know, quote unquote, accepted in the workplace, which I really had, uh, I really struggled with because here on one hand, you know, my therapist in yoga, like in all these personal development spaces, all the self-help books I was reading, they were like, set boundaries, set boundaries, set boundaries. And then, you know, I try and set boundaries with maybe like an unrealistic deadline or a client that's being difficult, or um, I'm being asked to be on like the third unpaid committee for the company. And, um, and then it's not received well. And, and that's, or, or you're docked for it. You're not promoted. You're, um, or the flip side, you're encouraged that it's a stretch role, that it shows that you're a leader to self-sacrifice uh, in my experience is, um, is what is rewarded in the workplace as a leader, which I really struggle with. Um, And so it really wasn't until I left that I honestly could actually, that I felt safe enough to practice setting boundaries in relationships. So I think it's really important to realize as an employee and as a manager that, again, these two, your life and your work are not separate. So if you're not able to, like, if you don't feel empowered or supported to set boundaries at work, that bleeds into your personal life and you like carry these traits of self-sacrifice into your personal life. And then you get burned out. That's what burnout is. Burn, one of the, the characteristics of burnout is emotional, exhaust, emotional exhaustion. That's like, you know, and so that, of course that's higher for, for women, for people of color, because they're, <laughs> emotionally exhausted regularly just existing in this society um and but if you do you know have an opportunity to to practice setting boundaries and i call it a practice because it is not easy because um many of us are taught to be people people pleasers and the workplace rewards people pleasers so it really goes kind of counter to what you observe around you and what you have been celebrated for. Um, But if you have that opportunity, you know, it really is a muscle. And if you don't set boundaries, what happens is resentment. And that, that definitely um, showed up for me. You know, I would get very, I was very resentful by the time I left corporate and Um, sure there were things that could have been better, but there were also boundaries I didn't set because I didn't feel like I, I could. Um, and so there is that personal responsibility and you have to, you have to be prepared, uh, that you, it might not be well received. You might not be liked as much. You might, there might be consequences, but at some point you have to ask yourself, like, is working another night until 11 p.m. or waking up at 6 a.m. or like working on your vacation or like in the lift to the airport, um, 
is that worth it? Or like, can I, can, can something wait until later? And when you stand up for yourself, anytime you set a boundary, you're standing up for yourself. Anytime you stand up for yourself, you're taking your power back. That's what it means to be empowered. So that's a really important part of just your personal journey, whether or not it's at work. We always have this pressure to, like you said, work beyond what we are capable. And that's why those boundaries are important. And I think it's really critical, especially now this year, 2020 in the pandemic, where organizations really truly need to allow employees to set boundaries. It's not just about, you know, like it's, yeah, employees have so, so much going on, right? Like myself, like I have my kids and they're work, you know, they're learning from from home and mm-hmm. we, we that's not going to change anytime soon so yeah it's funny that they might come running in right and before that was frowned upon but now companies need to realize like oh people have to go sit with their kids and help them learn whereas before that was purely you know the school's job um things like that right and so there's so much that uh a lot there's a lot of opportunity there is what I'm saying for mm-hmm. companies to really um, see it as more of a two-way street, not just a top-down approach. Yeah, I just read a report the other day, um, a joint effort between um, Lean and Cheryl's um, organization and um, McKinsey, and they said one in four women are looking to leave the workforce because they're so burned out and they specifically cited um, the overwhelming demands uh, of work and, yes. and, and companies not, or teams, they, they cited that um, specifically performance reviews have not been adjusted for this period. Um, and I could talk about this a long time, but like the research shows that women still take on a good portion of the household labor and the emotional labor at work. And so when you don't adjust for that, like you are pushing them out of the organization, you are pushing them out of the job, you're pushing them. And so I just, I need, it feels important to share that because again, I think the narrative often is like, oh, they couldn't hack it. They couldn't like, they couldn't, they didn't prioritize. They, they like, you know, they're not, um, they're not a team player or they're, you know, it's something about the woman, um, or the employee. And the fact of the matter is <laughs> these, these expectations are often, these goals that are set are often unrealistic. And that is more apparent now than ever when, when work and life are blending together. Yeah, it's, there's a lot to consider again, when you look at these practices, processes and policies that companies are putting in place, especially for women, people of color, people uh, who are typically disenfranchised or, you know, oppressed or suppressed. So it's really important for organizations again, to look at, okay, well, what do we need to do to adjust internally to ensure the success and well-being of our employees, right? And, um, you know, when we look at the workplace and within organizations, 
very often they dictate the goals and definitions of success. And so rather than forcing individuals to align with corporate goals, like how do we allow employees to define their own success? It's a really good question and something I asked myself the entire time I was in corporate because I felt, I felt nitpicked on things that weren't either something I could improve upon. Like it was, it was something about me and the way that I communicate or the, my own creative process or, you know, so it, there's that, that piece of it, which to me falls a bit into the micromanage bucket where like you're very set on something, a project being done a certain way. Um, and, and then also it's the goals. I spent time in sales and every time I, and I, you know, I was an overachiever. Um, I don't really pride myself on that anymore because it almost killed me. Um, but you know, fresh out of college, I like, nailed my goals. Like I was over my goals every single time. And guess what happened with that? They just raised my goals. So I was just in this like crazy, I mean, talk about a rat race, talk about being on the treadmill. Like I, they like dangled that carrot. They were like, Oh, we've got, we've got a striver, you know, and they just dangled that carrot until I, I crashed and burned. And, um, so that there are like these subtle ways that you exploit your workers and that are not okay. And, um, and that's not even getting into your original question, which was how you, how you can help, you know, how your employees, how you can help your employees define their own success. Um, and I don't have a, a great answer to that because I haven't figured it out myself because we've got capitalism and anytime I have an argument with someone (laughs) about this, they're like, but the bottom line. And like, even though I present the research that shows that like when, when employees are happier or when they feel good about themselves or when they feel like they're making, they're being recognized, making a meaningful contribution. I mean, there are so many studies that show that if, if, if that happens first, leading people first, then the re- the bottom line follows the productivity follows the efficiency follows the creative ideas follow by the way you know creativity doesn't happen when you're doing things 24/7 yep. creativity happens in the space between you need to dream and have space to be bored and you know so that's just something that I get really passionate about because it was so frustrating to me to be treated like a robot um, but I think, I mean, the research, um, there's, there are studies that do show, you know, autonomy, ha- an employee that has the ability to have a say over their projects or to have a say over, um, their next career move, they are more engaged mm-hmm. and engagement is something I think we really don't give a lot of credit towards. Sure. We might have like employee engagement surveys, but are we really, are we really understanding what keeps an employee engaged, engaged? Because when, when you are passionate about your work, when you feel like you're learning and growing and contributing in a meaningful way for 
for something greater than you, which could be a company's goal or mission, um, you will you will put your best foot forward when you can. When you're not, you won't. So it doesn't matter what the metrics necessarily are. That's not a motivator. People, humans are not motivated by metrics. They're motivated by like what lights them up and where they feel like they are, their gifts are being utilized for a greater purpose. Well, workplace happiness is something that's very key and something that's skirted around. I mean, again, we very often discount the emotions that we allow at work, right? And again, people want to be working towards something bigger, right? Like you and I were both at an organization that really focused on on this people element, right? Patients and, and um, being a healthcare organization. And kind of allowing people to have this greater sense of purpose than just the work that they're in. Again, that helps engage them, but it's critical for leaders to help their employees see their worth and, and their work contributing to that. They have to help their employees connect the dots and having these, I think that, you know, a way that we can frame it is, you know, Hey, we have these goals as an organization, but what do you want to do to help contribute to those goals? Mm-hmm. What do you want to do to, um, in what ways do you think you can contribute to those goals? Or mm-hmm. what is something that you want to do? You know, like, what are some side goals that you have? How can we help you grow, right? Again, it's traditionally been this, what can you do for me, right? Organizations mm-hmm. asking employees, what can you do for me? But rather, it needs to really flip on its head and say, what can we do to help you as an employee I love help that. you attain your goal, right? We all have to work for, you know, our service or our product, whatever it is. Yes. But what can we do to help you attain that as well as the other things that are in your life that you want to do? And so that constant grind is something that we really need to refocus on. And again, you studied workplace happiness, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of your current work talks about self-love slowing down and becoming self-aware and though how those affect workplace happiness and again we're constantly in this crazy rat race in work and even more so with this pandemic where we have become hyper productive and this is not a sustainable way of working Mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot more burnout so how do organizations and leaders then help their employees slow down and how do we show uh, or how do we boost workplace happiness And how do we help leaders do that? I love this question. And two things popped into mind. One is we have to drop perfectionism. We have to. Yeah. We have to. Because um, so so I studied as part of my burnout research, I studied um, toxic cultures, workplace cultures, um, which is interesting there's it's it's generally easier to get to an answer to a question by the you know the negative flip so anyways i studied these cult these they call the masculinity contest cultures which is essentially all traditional workplace cultures which is another way of saying the patriarchy is alive and well Mm -hmm. in the workplace and this is one of the reasons why women and people of color uh, continue to be underrepresented in positions of leadership and underpaid. And so 
um, that was kind of my original question. And I just, and I came across this body of research about these workplaces that just blew my mind because it really put to words what I had experienced. So the, the four, uh, the, the four norms that are uh, characteristic of these types of workplaces are one, put work first, two, show no weakness, three, dog eat dog competition, four, strengthen stamina, first in, first out. So I was like, wow, you wonder, okay, show no weakness. <laughs> you wonder why we all struggle with perfectionism. We are, these are perfectionistic workplaces. We are, we are taught to be, we are expected to be perfect. And then you come across Carol Dweck's work, which is the fixed versus growth mindset. And everyone, you know, knows that you want a growth mindset. Um, And that is, you know, leads to a much happier, fulfilling, you know, healthier life. Uh, But growth mindset, to have a growth mindset, the whole entire premise is that you're working not towards a goal, but towards the, the learning experience. And that failure and mistakes is an inevitable and might we say an embraced part of the learning experience. So that goes directly there are direct tensions between what we know about learning and growth and what is rewarded and expected in the workplace in yeah. you know in in these types of workplace environments um, so I just think about that when I think about what we need to do to have a more a happier workplace is we, we really have to look at what are the norms that we're that we're rewarding. Um, and, you know, perfectionism is one of those that we, we have to remember, especially during this time when like, you know, shit's hitting the fan and like, we're just, I mean, we're just trying to get up and get through the day, you know, 80% is like, I made it, you know? And so just having that compassion, um, for, you know, something that might be less than perfect. Does it have to always be the best? No, it doesn't always have to be the best. Am I always going to be the best? No, I'm not. I'm going to have bad days. People have been having a lot of bad days. Um, And so that really, that though begins with yourself. Um, Again, the research shows that when when you are a perfectionist, you are perfectionist towards other people. So that's your micromanagers. Micromanagers are micromanagers because they have very unrealistic high expectations for themselves. So it's, it's maybe counterintuitive, but again, that's where the inner work comes in, where once you start to cultivate, learn to cultivate compassion for yourself, uh, then it will be easier. You will have more, you'll take that you know, breath of like, Oh, right. Okay. They're human. You know, when someone does something that you think is stupid or like missed a deadline or something. So, um, that's really important. And then, um, meditation, I know that's like very hot, very hot topic these days, but, um, 
now that I have a team of my own, you know, before our meetings, I always lead them through a quick meditation or a quick grounding exercise because that it's so easy to just dive into business, but uh, you could dive into business and like talk about talk for 30 minutes on something that's actually not that important. So to take a, um, take a breath, take a beat, take a moment to check in with your own state um, I think is critical to, to actually operating as a team to op to, to working on the, the highest priority projects to pivoting when you need, it's just that self-awareness is, doesn't, doesn't happen if you don't take the time to make it happen. We, we often see right like meditation and mindfulness practice be like this woo woo thing but i've been like i i took a course myself recently this year and i i do exactly what you just said with your meetings right is before any interview including this one is i as i do a quick mindfulness practice i need to like clear my head and like ground myself and allow myself to come back to a place of balance and peace and that also allows me to like kind of clear out any like perceived like yes. connotations or biases that I might have of this person. And again, if I'm carrying in negative emotion into that interview, when I'm interviewing someone for a job, <laughs> that will come through in like my notes and my perception of that person. So it's really important that we, we really look at, you know, slowing down and taking that breath. And again, I love what you said about creativity because creativity for me, my creative moments do not come during the grind and grind and shine time, like during the day. It comes from when I'm running. It comes from when I'm showering. It comes from mm -hmm. when I'm just sitting around and just kind of like, like just not doing anything, right? And again, like you said, you, we have to pr give ourselves that space to do that. Yes, yes, yes. It never comes when you like carve out space to be creative. No, never. It's a, it's a kind of annoying in that way, but uh, but it's a it's a good reminder that yeah I mean play we didn't we haven't even had a chance to talk about play I really care a lot about play yeah. <laughs> um, because that's really tossed to the side as frivolous but again that I don't think you can really separate play and creativity I mean that's that's what it is to come up with something new. Well, I know that you wanted to share some like skills and tricks uh, for to show, you know, how to deal with some of these things and how you can also uh, show that you care about your team as a whole. So why don't you lead us through through those practices real quick? Yay. Okay. So um, there, there are really two practices that I wanted to share. One comes from somatic experiencing, which is a, um, I've studied it for gosh, almost seven years. Um, and it's a body oriented approach to trauma resolution and stress management. Uh, and I think that's really important, especially for these highly intellectual environments where you're in your head a lot of the time, because again, we tend to think we can think our way out of problems or when we feel overwhelmed, we just kind of like up the ante on trying to get through our to-do list because it makes us anxious and it 
anxiety is tricky because it kind of tricks it, it tricks you into thinking the discomfort will go away when the thing goes away. Mm-hmm. But when the things are to do list and we live in 2020, like, it's not pretty (laughs) like you will have insomnia, which is what I experienced because it just doesn't stop. Um, so this, this exercise is called orienting and it's great to do when you feel overwhelmed. And I think it's really important for leaders because you're, and I don't mean this to be like woo woo, but like your energy is contagious. So if you're like super stressed or really overwhelmed or scattered or like whatever is going on, your team will feel that it will trickle down. And so your priorities will be wishy-washy. Your direction will be wishy-washy and it will be a little bit of a mess. Um, I'm sure we, we've all been there and it's no shame. I mean, we're human, of course, but here's a little practice for your back pocket. So really all you need to do, and you can do it anywhere outside is really nice to do it, but you could just be in your, in your office or your home office. And all you do is you, um, put your feet on the ground. Um, I always like to just like take a beat and, um, feel my feet on the ground, my hands on my lap, that just that connection, um, sends, signals from your brain like down to your feet and it's like oh yeah okay feet on the ground so it's not thinking about your to-do list when you're thinking about that and then you just pick um three things and you label them so i i'm looking at a thermostat i'm looking at a painting and i'm looking at a pepper grinder chris what are you looking at yeah i am looking at a water bottle I am looking at a stack of notebooks and I am looking at a, a yellow wall that, which needs to be painted. <laughs> Amazing. And then if it feels safe, um, and it might not sometimes when, cause overwhelm is a, is a fight or flight response. It's like your nervous system is really, uh, at its max. So it might not feel safe. And sometimes you can just like look behind you. It's kind of an animal instinct. And just to make sure that you are in a safe environment, like there's Mm -hmm. no predators here. Um, so I feel safe enough to close my eyes and then I'll just label three things, three body sensations. So, um, my hands feel a little jittery. Um, my feet feel warm and my heart is thumping fast. Chris, do you want to share something that might be showing up for you inside? Yeah. I can hear my heartbeat in my ears. I can feel the heat of my light on my face and I can feel my back uh, being tight from sitting up straight. Nice. So we're not judging any of this. Um, we're just simply noticing. And I don't know if you can tell, and you can go through this as many times as you want. Um, and it is helpful if you can kind of move your head. Um, but I don't know if you notice. I feel a little bit calmer. I feel a little bit more grounded or present. 
And I think one of the misconceptions of mindfulness is that it feels good. It's not, that's not part of the deal. It might not feel good, but it will bring you to the present and the present. There's so much wisdom in the present. So another um, just short exercise that I wanted to share is a loving kindness meditation. And this has been shown to, there's a really cool body of research um, by the psychologist, Barbara Fredrickson. She's like one of my heroes. Um, She has what's called the broaden and build theory of positive emotions and positive emotions. Isn't just being happy. It's gratitude. It's creativity. It's inspiration. It's laughter. It's uh, love. So anytime you have those emotions um, that actually not only, you know, cultivates compassion for yourself and compassion for others, but that literally expands your peripheral vision so you can see more opportunities you can be more creative you can problem solve you can just cope with life a little bit better Mm -hmm. and loving kindness is one of the ways uh, or that this type of meditation is one of the ways to cultivate those emotions so i thought i could walk you and the audience through that really quickly yeah Okay, if you want to close your eyes and just arrive in your body in this moment, taking a deep breath in and a long exhale out through the mouth. Another breath in and a long exhale out. Noticing your chest rising and falling and taking note of how your body feels. Now, I want you to, and you can place your hand on your heart if that feels, uh, if that, if you would like, it's not required but this is just a moment to check in with yourself and then silently repeat the following words with the intention of sending good wishes towards yourself. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May I be happy. May I live with ease. Next, bring your attention to someone you love deeply. It could be a parent, a child, a pet, or even someone who has passed. And then send those same warm wishes to that person. And silently repeat the following words. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you live with ease. Next, you can bring your attention to someone with whom you feel neutral about, either uh, an acquaintance or a coworker. 
and silently repeat the following words. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you live with ease. And then you can zoom out to the whole world and all living beings and silently repeat the following words. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you live with ease. Because like you, all beings want to live a happy, healthy, fulfilling life. And just notice how all of that lands in your body, not judging anything, just letting your emotions be as they are. And then when you feel ready, you can start to flutter your eyes open. That was amazing. <laughs> Yay. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for leading us through that. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm so glad. I, it can be hard sometimes to know what cultivating self-compassion means, what it means to love yourself, to love others, to have compassion for others. So I, I like turning to these kinds of tools or, or guidance to help me tap into what that feels like. Well, fantastic. Thank you for leading us through that. Thank you for sharing so much about your story and just what you do. Uh, where can people connect with you and where can people um, learn more about your work? Yeah. So my website is elizabethstude.com and I have my weekly newsletter that you can sign up for there and it's really fun. And then my Instagram handle is hey Elizabeth Sue. And I've recently been leading live dance parties to shake off some of that anxiety. So I hope you'll join me for that. Awesome. Thank you again, Elizabeth. It was great having you on. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad you're tuning in to this week of inspiration on the Leading People First podcast. My biggest takeaway from Elizabeth was the importance of cultivating compassion for ourselves in order to take care of others. Ensuring our own well-being mentally, physically, emotionally is key to our health and happiness. So as People First Leaders, we have to take that into account with our employees. If you loved Elizabeth's message and think someone you know needs to hear her message, or maybe you just want to inspire someone, make sure you take a screenshot and share it out to the world. Don't forget to connect with Elizabeth and sign up for her newsletter, Monday Vibes. Thank you so much again for tuning in. We have three more guests over the next three days for this week of inspiration to kick off 2021. So make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. If you want to continue the conversation, make sure you're following us on LinkedIn and Instagram. Thank you again. Keep leading people first and stay awesome.